Hi, this is Jerry DiPiano, and you are listening to the Love Mia Vita podcast sponsored by Fem Pharma. Today, my guest is Dr. Juliana Hauser, and Dr. Juliana Hauser has been a frequent guest on the Love Me of Vita podcast. We're so happy to have you once again, Dr. Juliana. Juliana. I love being here. For those of you that have listened in to our podcasts, you probably know a lot about Dr. Juliana, but for those that may be listening in for the first time, let me share a few pieces of information about Dr. Juliana's distinguished background. She received her PhD in counseling education from the College of William and Mary, and she is considered a thought leader and sexpert who dives deep into the hard to have issues that we all need to be having. She leads conversations about relationships, about agency, sexuality, intimacy, and so much more. And she's also a lot of fun. So when we have these conversations and I'm sure when she has those with her patients and others that she counsels, she has a sense of compassion, a sense of understanding, but also a sense of humor that is so important, particularly when we are dealing with difficult to have conversations. So Dr. Juliana, Juliana Hauser, we are so happy to have you. And at the end of this program, don't let me forget to mention your website so that our visitors, listeners, and viewers have the opportunity to check things out. And if they want to consult with you, they can find you. Great. Thank you. I always look forward to our conversations, Jerry. Likewise. Now, today we are taking a little bit of a different turn because we predominantly have conversations that impact the individual, so the, the patient or client, if you will. And this is certainly something that could be of interest to anyone listening in, but it should be particularly important for healthcare practitioners because we're going to have a conversation about holistic sexuality and the competencies or the need for additional competency for all healthcare practitioners. It is, um, it is an important topic. Um, it's a topic that is often not invested into any great extent in medical school education, which is something we're hoping to support going forward because it is an initiative that's quite important. Um, and I know Dr. Juliana, this is something that is near and dear to your heart. Um, you'll be able to find this, by the way, um, on the FEMFAR website as a blog post, and we'll have a lot of detail on this. So whether you are a layperson or a professional, you can read about it as well. But when we think about addressing these issues with a healthcare practitioner, irrespective of what your specialty may be, could be gynecology or dermatology or plastic surgery, we all need to have a basic understanding of sexuality and sex, and sex education is, is fundamental to that. Um, unfortunately, healthcare practitioners, not because they're not compassionate, are often not engaging in these conversations. And there are many reasons that have been cited in the, in the research that is available to us. One is the lack of time. And I'm sure any healthcare practitioner, or even any patient or client listening in, can appreciate that healthcare practitioners are overwhelmed with patients. Started even before the pandemic, 
but certainly it's just been exacerbated. And then there is the training aspect. We, we know that medical school training um, lacks specific coursework in sex education and intimacy and things of that nature. And then there, there are some personal issues. And we talk about one's own embarrassment or potentially the patient or client's um, lack of, let's say, understanding of the value of sex, sex and, and sexual intimacy and may feel violated by having their HCP broach that subject. But we're going to talk about that. Um, and I, I'd like I'd like to start off with um, with sort of the self-assessment, starting with um, what should a healthcare practitioner do is sort of the groundwork. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's I we we've talked about this quite a bit. It's a passion for for both of us. And and one of the places that when I'm talking directly to a healthcare provider is, is I want to start with such compassion for you are also a human who, um, if, we're, if you're in the United States, you have like all of us not been properly sex educated. And, and that just, that's just all of us. None of us have been given the, the proper education that we need to have, regardless of what your profession is. Although there's a, an assumption that if you've gone to medical school, if you've had any kind of medical training, that you will have had something different, something more than the rest of us. And as we know, that isn't always the case. So where I want to start is you are, you and your sexuality as a healthcare provider matters just as much as you providing that for your practitioners. So I, I want to start there as please do the, do sex education that's in an evolved and holistic way for yourself, because you need to have support in who you are as a sexual person in your sexual journey. And by doing so, the evolved holistic sexuality education that's available now will help you to as well look at your bias, your places that your values intersect with other parts of your work. And that's really important. Um, and that's kind of where we're heading uh, through once we talk about the, the personal part of it. The other part that I think that is an unfair assumption um, that people give to healthcare practitioners is that they automatically feel comfortable talking about sex or someone else's sex life. And that's not true either. Again, if it's not part of your medical training or your specialty and you weren't sexually educated properly as, as a person, then the assumption that you're comfortable with it is erroneous. Uh, it may be true, but it, it's not an assumption that we can make. So if you're doing your own work and getting comfortable with the topics in your own skin and your own sexual journey, then that is gonna help you for those patients that either are very comfortable and you're, you're kind of surprised by their openness or what they are experiencing sexually and need support in, or to help those who are feeling the tabooness of the topic. Your comfort level will help in a multitude of ways. The last point I want to make is if you're getting support, not just in the education of it, but also your own sexual journey, we forget that, and, and I, I get this in my field too, that we hear a lot of stories. 
we hear trauma stories that have a sexual nature to them. We work with people who have had sexual violence. And if your sexual story has experienced that as well, then you need to have that support personally so that you can show up for your patients that are having this experience and that you don't feel traumatized or triggered throughout the rest of your day if you've had this experience with a patient. A lot of us in, in the field learn how to compartmentalize, but you have to have a place that you don't compartmentalize that experience for yourself after hours as well. And oftentimes uh, the healthcare providers, they're so busy uh, all day and then they're busy in their life afterwards that they don't take the time to have self-care and especially within their sexual journey. And the last thing I'll say is because you're human and if you're breathing and if you're practicing and then you are both, then you have an actual act, active sexual life as well. Whether you're being sexually active or not, your sexuality is alive and fluid and it will interact uh, even subtly and subconsciously with your patients. And that doesn't mean sexual with your patients. I don't mean that. I just mean that when you look at, when you understand sexuality holistically, it means that it is every part of who you are and how you present and connect with other people. And you, as you hear stories, it will influence where you are. If you are hearing a story and someone, a patient's need that's similar to your own, it will intersect with that. Or if you have a patient that has a sexual life or experience that is incongruent with your values or something that you wish that you were having in your own personal life, that also will be something that you need to unpack and have support in. Yet we don't provide that for practitioners very often, nor do we even remind them that they need to have that support for their own personal lives. So we start there. Uh, you, you and your sexual life matters just as much as your patients. You know, we tend to think that the healthcare practitioner, the professional, whether it's a nurse practitioner or whether it is a an MD, that she or he uh, is a deity in a white coat, and, and they're they're not. Um, we're not. Uh, we you know we come we come with our own backgrounds, baggage. You illustrated most of that in the conversation, and it's important to acknowledge that but also to understand that your patient population may not be the same, right? It could be a diverse patient population, depending upon where you live, whether it's in a city, whether the population is di diverse. Um, and we need to be able to make space for all of these individuals, um, thinking about their sexual activity, their sexual orientation, their gender identity, their gender roles for different practices, for eroticism and pleasure and intimacy and reproduction. And so the checklist is a really long checklist. And that's why when we started this conversation, um, it's showing yourself some compassion as a healthcare practitioner, giving yourself that grace of understanding I didn't, I don't even know what the right pronouns are. Well, you know, we probably need to be a little bit better informed about what pronouns are appropriate and how to make space for individuals that may not look like us or act like us or have the same experiences that we have had. So I think it's fundamentally important that we recognize that. And we, we also recognize that our healthcare practitioner like us um, may still have some growing to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well put. And so, so we 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 talk about, or you talk a lot about sexual agency, and in the context of the healthcare practitioner, we should we should 
revisit that topic as it pertains to the healthcare practitioner because it is it is really important. So as part of that self-assessment. Mm -hmm. So it's to me the cornerstone of evolved and holistic sexuality. And in the shortest definition of it, although it's a very complex concept, it is learning your terms and then living your terms. And when we put agency inside of sexual agency, it is learning your yeses and nos, your wants, your needs, your values, your decisions within a sexual contact and within sexual connection. And sometimes that means sex acts, but we're also meaning it in a more evolved and holistic way of looking at sexuality also well beyond orientation and well beyond sex acts. But it's, it's the premise that everyone gets to decide what's right for them. And some of that belies uh, some of the culture that we have right now, but, but I'm um, steadfast in that belief that when someone believes this themselves, that they get to decide what is a yes or a no for them and, and so many aspects of it, it absolutely changes how they show up in connections and how they feel about themselves um, with those connections that has a, a huge synergy um, and pattern to it. It also means that you understand that you have a responsibility, not just a right to it, but you have a responsibility of knowing your yeses and nos and a responsibility for, for doing that self-exploration and for being somebody that when someone's connecting with you, you allow there to be agency uh, for them as well. And that's complicated. It's, it's complicated when there's conflict and difference of needs and wants. It's complicated when there's different values that are at play. And it's complicated to um, to navigate all of that. But if you are somebody who is is holding to the belief of sexual agency, you see it as a right, a responsibility, and a community. Very well said and fundamental. Because let's face it, your just the decisions you make about your own sexuality, if you're a healthcare practitioner, may be different than those of the individuals that are coming to you as patients and clients. And you have to be mindful and respectful of that. And by giving them the opportunity to use, to invoke their agency and not be judgmental about the, what their choices may be. And, mm -hmm. and this goes to how, how to start that process of educating yourself. So we talk about the background work. So the work that we all need to be doing to get ourselves to a better place as it pertains to sex education, understanding of basic anatomy and physiology. Where do where does a healthcare practitioner start? Where do you advocate that they start, Juliana? It's I mean, there's multiple ways to do it, but the headline of it is you have to do the work because it's really not often provided for you. I have a similar thing in my field of the mental health that it that. When I go to conferences, when I'm looking for CE credits, it's very difficult for me to find a, um, someone that is presenting on the topic of sexuality. Usually it's me that's doing it. Uh, and uh, But to get it for myself is difficult. And that's the same thing in the, in the medical field and any kind of healthcare practitioner is when you can look for them, go to when you're at a conference, find the one that's talking about sexuality. And if you aren't finding that, and if you are finding the theme that is not there, talk to your leaders and ask 
they do listen. They want to know. And, and I will find out a conference, who the conference leader is two years ahead and say, please bring in speakers that are speaking about this topic. And I don't have a lot of time to keep doing it, but I will make the effort to, to write an email or two. And if I had multiple colleagues that were doing that as well, they'll listen. That will matter. And if they keep hearing that message over and over again, it will matter. Um, but again, I know time is limited. So uh, what I do is I also have gone to the, to the personal, to the private, and I educate myself even outside of professional organizations. And I find the places that have a reputable certification. I find the places online um, and a person that has, has the credentials that I'm looking for and ha had the topics that, um, that I agree with. And then I also look online. So you, you uh, mentioned that there's a lot of, of change happening, especially in the past couple of years on terminology that are related to sexual orientation um, and gender identity and, and gender expression. Those particularly are, are a hotbed now of change. And um, even I have to keep up, and this is something that I, I keep up a lot in. So I look online and I look on reputable sources that have definitions that they're keeping up with so that I hear the new terms and I'm aware of them. And what I would say is kind of going back to the point we made about looking at your own biases and looking at how you know you need to do the work yourself, which is as a practitioner, there will be times. And, and I and I again like have a loss of compassion for practitioners because you have it both ways. You you have to look at your values and how that intersects congruently or incongruently with your patients. And then depending on what your practice is the ownership of the practice that you're in or the healthcare um, conglomerate that, you're, that you, your practice is underneath, sometimes you have conflicts with that value system or what they are saying you can say or ask or not say too, and you can be in a double bind in, in a certain way. Um, and that can come forward even with the value system of, of gender uh, identity and using those terms or educating yourself on that. Um, and everyone has to find their, their middle ground and, and what feels right for them. But I, I still feel that that and I want to advocate for look just even look online if you hear a term that you don't know then look it up and learn about it and you can ask your patient to explain it to you but I also am always careful to not make patients that are going through this always have to do that emotional labor for every single person that they are coming up and asking support in um, but uh, sometimes you need to quickly know what they're at what they're saying and, and then look it up later for, for yourself but I when we're looking at the, the biases and, and looking where you are, you want to make sure that your first reaction isn't like, oh my goodness, not another one, <laughs> not another new term coming up here. I don't, how do we keep up with this? Or this is ridiculous or those kinds of things. If you hear yourself doing that, which would be a normal reaction for, for a lot of people. And it's, it's common to have people frustrated with, with the changing trends, then that is also a sign that you need to be seeking more uh, support in this because your values in those places, um, depending on how your practice is set up, is is not going to be relevant to what your patient need is. But educating yourself is, and knowing that you need to keep educated is an a pivotal part of, of showing up for yourself in this way too. Yeah, we talk about continuing medical education and you know the opportunity for um, for those of us that believe in continuing education to provide this type of coursework, which is so fundamental. The American Medical Sto uh, School Student Association has started to uh, provide coursework. Um, there are many courses because obviously medical school education is, is pretty rigorous and um, the courses are largely have been historically dictated and don't 
haven't to this point included that sort of work, but uh, the cohort of medical school uh, students that have been um, coming up in the last five to 10 years, I think it's five years, um, have really started to recognize this more as a need. Um, and so they are putting together this sort of coursework, but, but even more than that, uh, we need more formalized education. And I, I believe that um, we can do that with those that have completed their medical school education. We could do that in continuing education units, uh, going to symposia where um, there is sponsorship for that sort of thing. So you're not dealing with patients and then you know reading textbooks or listening to podcasts like this one. Uh, but we, we look at the very basics and where anatomy and physiology come into play, because let's face it, we may not, um, in the grand we, may not have exposure to the right types of information, even as basic as female anatomy, male anatomy, and physiology. You know, how do all the parts work? We, we probably have a good understanding of that. How they work from a sexual perspective may be totally different. So let's let's talk real basics. So you want to make sure that you understand uh, even just the right language of comparison of like, and what I want the, the, what you want to be saying is the penile system and the clitoral system. What we are taught even in medical school is the penis and the vagina. And that is in, an incorrect comparison. And it is still surprisingly used a lot in the, in the medical field. And so just even up leveling yourself to that terminology makes a big difference. And then you want to back it up the education. Uh, there is a book that is, uh, it's actually quite old. It is my favorite. My, my copy of it is so tattered <laughs> That, um, that I, I, I don't want to get rid of it because it's, it's an oldie, but goodie. Um, but it's one that I recommend to everybody and it's called the clitoral truth. And it is a uh, groundbreaking when it came out. Um, the author is Rebecca Chalker and she goes through such a beautiful description of the clitoral system, the terminology, the diagrams are very accessible for a practitioner as well as for a patient. And it really explains that we have to understand, especially when we're looking at anatomy that is a female anatomy, that you understand how much is involved for the reproductive system and for the sexual um, health um, in, in, in this area. Um, and to understand not just what the parts are called and how they function or what a dysfunction would look like, but how it all works together to create pleasure. And pleasure is an interesting word that isn't used very often in, in our training, whether it's a CE or, or um, in, in school, but it should be. And that's the, the second addition I would add to this when we're looking at anatomy is don't just learn the names. Don't just understand the functionality of it. Understand the different ways that symptoms uh, uh, will appear and it's not functioning, but really understand how this all works together for pleasure. Because ultimately, that's a lot of what people are asking when they're talking about pain during sex, when they're talking about not um, experiencing orgasm and being concerned about that, they are also asking, how do I achieve pleasure then? And when you can understand the whole clitoral system, when we're speaking to those um, who have uh, um, a female anatomy, you are wanting to have the, a holistic answer to them. And most are not taught that. And that is something that will evolve. So mm -hmm. it's 
It's not something that is static. It's something that will evolve. It's not, you know, relegated to a certain phase of life. So when, you know, when the topic of sex and sexuality is discussed, sometimes we have a bias to think about how well, sex is something and pleasure is something that young people enjoy. And we we should think about this not as a phase of life. And I know you point that out, that sexuality is ever-changing. And so thinking about how pleasure plays into that and I love the word plays because it you know we want to make it fun right so, yes so this tell help me to understand that sexuality is ever-changing and fluid mm -hmm. so it's uh again one of the few things that we all have in common is that we have sexuality that doesn't always sound like that makes sense because we are, have been taught a very very narrow view of what sexuality means but again with a holistic lens to it uh, it, it, our sexuality changes. It changes as we grow. It changes as our, uh, our anatomy matures. It changes as we have interactions in relationships with, uh, political interactions with our era. It changes with our culture. If you have any religious views of it, we are constantly reworking our relationship with sexuality. Uh, some of that involves our body and some of it involves society, sometimes it involves social constructs, and a lot of it can be a spiritual and individual endeavor too. It is rare that we have all of our sexuality be a static thing. There's, there's often things that stay the course for us in values or our own experience with it, but most of the time we have a very different, like what would be a yes to us at this age? can turn into a no and vice versa. And, and that is something that I could put into detail, whether it's someone who's five, is a, it's a this at five, and then it changes at 12, and then it changes at 21, and it changes at 22, uh, and then it changes again at 45. All of those things happen. Um, and, and, and how that's relevant to, to healthcare providers is that Oftentimes we will have a focus of sexuality during the reproductive years. So when puberty begins to menopause and really we only talk about sexuality if somebody's in a relationship uh, and that that is sanctioned and, and identified easily or it's someone who is wanting to get pregnant or not get pregnant. Um, and and that is a mistake because sexuality is showing up throughout the lifespan and making assumptions that sexuality is, is a priority or is not a priority uh, for a patient uh, will be a missed opportunity of supporting their health care um, and their sexual wellness. So thinking about, so as we talk about, you know, the, the anatomy, the physiology, the concept of pleasure and the, the absolute um, privilege and, and right that each individual has to sexual pleasure, the evolution um, that you describe, the evolution, the psychological evolution of that person, which may be tied into, closely tied into the changes in their physical condition would be vitally important. And you could think of a number of examples. You could think about it. I know this is largely directed at women, but you could think about the man who has diabetes and he is experiencing erectile dysfunction. Or you could think about the woman who may have a metabolic issue that is impacting her weight and her ability to move and, and how that might impact her feelings about her body and her sexuality or, her, or the, her, the way in which she functions as a sexual being. 
And then we talk about what happens when you lose your partner. And I know we've had podcasts around death and divorce. So understanding a little bit about that background and how that plays into sex, sexual pleasure. So lots, there's a lot of education mm -hmm. and a significant process that one must go through. There's also that attitude that you describe, um, and it's, you, you call it sex positive versus sex negative. Mm -hmm. Yes. So if you're going to, with most people, if you ask them if they're sex positive, they're going to say yes. And, and I think it's because we don't know exactly what that means. And, and so I, I included it in the, in the article because I, I want to be clear about at least what I think it means to be sex positive. It begins with a, with a belief of sexual agency, which we already discussed, that you believe everyone has a right and a responsibility in order to, 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 to know what they need and, and what they don't need and want and, and don't want. It also means that you are conscious about there being a continuum of how sexuality is expressed and experienced, and that particularly the places where you don't fall in the continuum, but you know your patients do, that you show in um, subtle ways, uh, in nonverbal ways, as well as verbal ways, that you are a safe person uh, and a safe practice and a, and a, a, a practice and a person that believes that sexuality isn't taboo, it isn't abnormal, and it is something that you believe is a part of the human experience and that you want to support how anyone is deciding they're wanting their sexuality to be expressed and supported. Interestingly enough, uh, you talk about the sort of the, the messages that are sent to the patient population, right? Your patient population. And they can be very subtle. So as an example of that, it could be the artwork in your office. It could be the, the way in which you uh, advertise for different types of concerns. We, we see one um, that appears in offices around vaginal and vulvar dryness. Ask me about that, which mm -hmm. opens the conversation, right? It is a, it is a conversation starter. But if you're uncomfortable putting those types of messages out in your office, that may make the patient feel reluctant to engaging with you. So having the right, the right images, having the right demeanor, having the um, the willingness to be open about these kinds of issues, from what I'm I'm understanding, is really important. So it's almost as much what you do. <laughs> as much as what you say and how you say it. Agreed. And you you have to have it be aligned with the truth of how you're going to show up uh, to your patient privately. You don't want to put a display on uh, in your waiting room and then not provide that in the privacy of your appointment. But uh, as we push towards that being more of, of, a, of a sex positive pra um, practice, it absolutely matters. And I can say to you as a mental health provider that my clients say this to me when we are talking about, because I have lots of, of clients that I've helped along the way know how to show up for an appointment, a medical appointment. And we will talk about what, what's on the website, what is, how do we look for safe um, environments and safe practitioners? And, and, and I will have patients that they'll look on the website and they don't have anything that has inclusion and uh, as a part of it, they will not even look at it. 
um, and they'd rather pay out of pocket uh, and go out of uh, their insurance um, practice than, and then go to somebody who isn't. And that isn't necessarily somebody who's even in a marginalized um, group. This is somebody that's their value, that they only want to go to a practice that's inclusive. And that is becoming a lot more common um, in my work than it, it was even a couple of years ago. So it's your website. It's your waiting room. It's how you train your front office staff. It's it's everyone. It's not just you. It is, does the, does everyone have an air of inclusivity? Um, it's amazing what a like, huh? One moment like that from someone in your front office staff looking at um, an answer or answering a question without really knowing it and without compassion will, will harm somebody and have them not come back again or not show up at the appointment in the way that they need to. Culture matters. It yeah. always does. It matters in business and it matters in your in the practice of medicine. It just matters. Mm -hmm. I believe that that is a wonderful illustration and particularly more recently as there are certain practices um, that may not feel safe, uh, even from a practitioner point of view. So we, we would like to acknowledge that there are practitioners who may also feel they are not safe if they are, if they embrace certain, let's say inclusivity, um, whether that is the, you know, reproductive rights or whether that is to be, ex, you know, sensitive and welcoming to members of the LGBTQ plus community whether it is about transitioning individuals, whether it is how we identify as male, female. So we, we wanna be careful to recognize that that has become a very sensitive issue for the healthcare practitioner. And there is likely to be more to be discussed along these lines. We won't cover that in this podcast, but if it, it, it may feel uncomfortable for you listening as a healthcare practitioner, possibly if you are a patient client, um, to be mindful that your HCP, depending upon where she or he practices medicine, may feel um, vulnerable, let's put it that way, may feel vulnerable to different types of views, philosophical, religious, and otherwise. Mm -hmm. uh, that is an absolute valid concern. And again, add to the compassion that, that I and we have for practitioners that so often there's a double bind to it. I do think even, even with that, there are ways to express to the potential patients or to your existing patients that you are a safe practitioner that can, in ways that can lessen the risk that you're bringing to yourself. But you're, you're absolutely right. There is a, unfortunately, there is still a risk. And in fact, the risk is growing. Uh, I, I remember it from when I was in high school. Uh, and I've, I've said before that my father uh, is a physician and mother is a nurse. And I remember some practitioners, even back then, when they identified as being uh, sex positive, uh, were quite at risk and, and then ostracized even from other medical practitioners. Um, and I think that is something we'll see again and, and, and is real. It's real to everybody. And, and yet I, I think there's ways to find uh, a middle ground where everyone can feel safe and inclusive to the values that they have. Um, and, I, and I also 
I want to I want to acknowledge that not every practitioner wants to or can um, provide support in an inclusive and diverse way. And if that doesn't hold with what your value is, if that doesn't hold for for what you, you, kind of the rules and the culture of where you're practicing, I I, I understand that you don't then want to falsely advertise, uh, because I have had had clients who thought because of some wording that they were going to be safe to explain their needs. And then that was not the value system of the practitioner. And that disconnect was, was very scary and, and really uh, miseducative. So I, I want it to always be something that is true to your values. You said something earlier on uh, during our conversation, and it really is being your authentic self. And that, that will, that will go a long way I believe as a, and I'll speak as a patient, obviously not as a physician, but as a patient, it would make me feel much more comfortable knowing that whomever I was visiting, healthcare practitioner, was authentic and not misrepresenting what they thought would make sense to someone like me who may be very, who may be very philosophically liberal and accepting only to find out that you know, the arms are crossed and the, you know, they're, they're not acknowledging my beliefs and it's clear that they are hugely uncomfortable. So authenticity is, is very important from what I'm understanding. And it, it does make sense. It makes sense to me as a, as a patient mm -hmm. to know that I'm visiting a person that I can trust that is showing up the way they, they should be, which is true to their value system. And just like we talked about like that that everyone who's a human has generally not been properly sex educated. You know, that obviously includes the patient as well. And and so most people have a different feel to asking a question about their sexuality. And, and that falls for me too. I, I've moved quite a bit. And um, and so I've I've had to often recreate my uh, medical support team every time that I've moved. And so I've had lots of practice of figuring out who the practitioners are that are going to be supportive of me. And, and because I, I'm a bit cheeky and because of what I do, I um, will often start off my appointments with like, so how much do you care about my sexual health? And it's so interesting because some are just so disarmed and just like, what are you talking about? And then they look to see that I'm kind of smiling at it. And others are like, oh, I care a lot. Let's talk about it. Uh, or some will be like, um, that's not relevant to our work together. It's, it's, I've gotten every reaction you could think of. Uh, I even had someone admonish me uh, and that person was a gynecologist. It was just so interesting to, to have that reaction. But what I started doing for myself, and I actually teach my clients this too, to say some version of that is that I needed to become desensitized to that experience. And I also, for just for me, what I, what I realized was that I was avoiding the topic. Even with what I do, I found that when I was going to my um, appointments, especially when I was establishing a new relationship, I was afraid to bring it up. Even when I didn't have a presenting issue that was related to my sexuality, I knew that I needed to be with a practitioner that if and when I had a sexual question that I was gonna feel comfortable before because it was going to be, and I, and I know this just because of, of how things are, 
it's not even it's not even easy for me to bring up questions that I need support in my sexual health. So I really need to make sure that I can say it. For me, it works by being kind of funny about it. Um, and, and I've been able to uh, weed out who shouldn't be on my team uh, through something like that. And I think that's an interesting way for a practitioner to consider it too. How would you respond to a patient that said that? Would that be off-putting? Would it be like, uh, would it be like the like the Seinfeld moment that you put it in their in their folder? Mm, like this, this person's, you know, uh, um, sexually forward or, or speaking about it, or would it be a breath of fresh air? Even that. Uh, reaction that you just had to hearing my story. It'll be interesting to see what you think of it. Uh, and do you want to invite more of that? Would that be refreshing or, or would that be scary? And that's really the, you know, the, the little bit of the dilemma on sexual history too, right? So if let's say you, you know, you, you, you are doing your work, you figure out that you are sex positive, you've done your inventory in your office and, and now it's, you're one-on-one -on -one with your patients and this is the new initiative. And you can you can find that patient who is completely turned off. Mm -hmm. Use that word, turned off, turned off and put and put off and perhaps angered by the questions regarding sex, sexual health. It may feel very offensive. It, feel, it may feel very intrusive, even though that you've just had a physical exam, which could include a lot of things. It could include a pelvic. It could include a breast self exam or a prostate exam if you're a guy. But now you're asking the person about how's your sex life? Do you want to talk about sex? And getting that sexual history. So how does how does a healthcare practitioner navigate that? Mm -hmm. at, the, at the risk of sounding redundant, I'm going to say that the first thing that you have to start off with is knowing it is something that you need to be asking and having it sound just like you're asking how many times a week are you exercising? Uh, what are your eating habits that you need to believe that that is a normal and healthy question and responsibility to add to the questions that you're asking in the general exam. And if you have that attitude and you have that belief, it's going to change how you say it in a way that's normalizing and it will help even if it is off-putting and you can't tell. Like I, I often will say to practitioners that I work with, it's, it's, like you are constantly doing ad lib. You you are doing ad. You have no idea what's walking in the door, uh, especially even with even with established patients. You don't know what's going to happen, so you have to be agile to uh, the presenting problem, and and you um, and that could be in the sexual uh, context as well. What I like to say next is. You know, there's a, a, obviously a growing trend of doing a screening for domestic violence and suicide ideations, and included in that should be a question about your what is your sexual health and and your sexual activity, and and I I love that it's being included. It's it's helping everyone get used to that so that they're not surprised, so that that they anticipate they're going to be asked about domestic violence, they're anticipating sexual ideation. I mean, excuse me, suicide ideation, and they're anticipating um, questions about their sexual health, which will help lessen the shock if they're going to be shocked or the tabooness of it, and it allows it allows patients to again have their agency 
that if they don't want to talk about it, they don't have to talk about it, but they can. And you are there um, allowing that. One of my one of my favorite uh, stories of a practitioner that I felt to be so sex positive, and he was a gynecologist. He had a three three question rule. And when I first was young and uh, when I was young and going to him for, for the first time, I, I so appreciated that he did this. He asked me three different times in a, an exam when I had all my clothes on. He asked me that he asked me when I had the, the scratchy gown on. And then he asked me it again when I uh, had gotten my clothes back on. And the question was this, is there anything else I should be asking you? Is there any other question that you have? Is there anything in your sexual life um, that you want to know before you leave today? And I would know what my questions were, or I had an issue and I was so embarrassed um, and didn't know how to ask it, that it would always take me the third question um, for him to, to throw it to me and uh, for me to answer it. Uh, and I think as a practitioner, you think of that too. It doesn't have to be three times if that doesn't make sense when you only got 15 minutes with somebody and there's a whole, they're not even presenting about their sexual health, but it should be something that you don't just say, any history of domestic violence, any suicide ideations, any questions about sexual health, like it shouldn't be a checklist that you're not even looking at them and that you're not pausing. It's not that like when you call in, can I put you on hold please? And it's not even a question. They're just saying it. Um, I, I want you to, to, I want it to matter that you're asking the question as a practitioner and that you even just give it a pause. If you can't repeat it, that's fine. I get it. Um, if you ever can, that's wonderful too. Um, but I, I want you to be somebody that feels like part of what you're doing as a practitioner is normalizing the topic regardless of how they respond to it. And I can say as a practitioner, I mean, as a mental health practitioner, my clients will say to me, they act sometimes differently than how they feel. And, and so even if they act surprised or they tell you it's not relevant, they'll come and tell me, I'm so glad they asked. How do I next time answer them? And so don't always take someone's answer, especially within a sexual realm, as exactly how they're feeling and how they think about it. It may take them a couple of visits before they do it. And they may be even subtly and subconsciously testing, are you safe? And I'm curious about putting information like that in a chart because we know that that information, again, this is all electronic these days. Um, but putting that in an electronic record, um, particularly if you're talking about talking with a person that might be very, very reluctant to share, but but ultimately shares because there is a concern. You know, maybe a relationship is souring because of a particular issue on sexual dysfunction that may be caused by another medical problem, diabetes, heart disease, what have you. And they're they're concerned about the relationship they don't necessarily want it in a in a record so options should should an hcp give a patient an option to incorporate that in a medical record or how how does one go about that what's what are your thoughts on that you always have to defer to the ethical codes of your profession and the practices of the um of the practice that you are working within so that goes first and then if, if there's room within all of that, then what I think is best practice is to say this uh, in writing and to your to your patient um, verbally that um, I can I want to ask these questions and I want you to be able to answer honestly and fully. And I um, also will be very I will limit what I put into your records. Um, for your confidentiality um, and to help you feel like you can say it to me. 
uh, as well. And that can make a big difference because that is a huge concern that I hear from a lot of clients. And that this is well before the past couple of years, how things have changed, but it's particularly now things um, have changed that there's a lot of fear putting anything in writing and they will not ask anything if they think that they can't trust a practitioner to um, be mindful and protective in their, in their records. And that, that is really where I, where the question emanated. Um, it was really from the perspective that there, again, we started by saying that we wanted to show grace and compassion to the healthcare practitioner, because depending upon where you reside, uh, what the philosophical and cultural attitudes may be, you may feel vulnerable, but your patients, your clients may feel equally vulnerable if they share information that could have other repercussions for them, that was the, that was the genesis of that question. Yeah. That, that the asking the information years ago, we ran a clinical trial for um, a condition called endometriosis with it, which healthcare practitioners will understand because it's a pelvic and reproductive disease. We did have um, quite an extensive inclusion and exclusion criteria, which required you to disclose information about your sexual history and things like sexual pain and where it emanated from and frequency of intercourse and so forth. And so maybe not so surprisingly, we had very good um, compliance with answering those questions. So it, it, it was, it's not surprising to me because we, we have the evidence that if you ask, and in this case, uh, it was questionnaire. It was this was paper? Although we did um, have a, a electronic diaries as well. Women answered those questions again. It was just, this was a study in women because endometriosis is a condition uh, of women in the reproductive age group cohort. But not it shouldn't be so surprising. So good tip: they'll answer the question if it's asked. When it's not asked, they won't answer. That's right. They not volunteer that information, but if it's asked, they will answer. Mm -hmm. That's great. And, and it's wonderful you asked too. Uh, I, I wanted to go back to, again, like when we're talking about, um, again, all the issues that practitioners are having to navigate. I, I truly, my, I mean, I just feel so protective of practitioners of the spot that they are in. And, and then I feel, I'll just admit it, I feel a bit of outrage in, in, in wanting like how hard it is for practitioners then to get up-to-date education and support in navigating these issues. Um, and you asked previously, and I, and I realized I didn't say this too, that um, I really, I, I think it's important to have colleagues that you trust and that you can ask and collaborate with, uh, like what are best practices? Where are you finding this so that you don't feel so isolated and alone? Um, it, it is obviously we need to be better educating our practitioners and supporting them in an ever-changing um, climate, but also look to each other and look to the ones that are speaking about it. Look to the ones that you trust and say, how are you handling this? And what are you seeing as well? Uh, I think that makes a big difference. It is a multidisciplinary approach to dealing with the, the multitude of issues and you know concerns and just basic anatomy, physiology, how that interplays with the so the mind, body, and sexual intimacy of the individual. 
that one one healthcare practitioner, let's say you're an internal medicine specialist listening in on this uh, on this uh, podcast, it's th- there's a lot here that you can expect to have support on from other practitioners in your world. Uh, there could be other IMs, could be a gynecologist that you have great respect for, someone that you know is also experiencing some of these challenges, but it, and, and a healthcare practitioner like yourself, Juliana, a mental health professional that has these conversations that hears directly from the client about their concerns, about how the interplay of whatever is going on with their metabolic health or their, whether it's cardiovascular or whether it's something, you know, different, but that, that plays into their sex ed and sexuality and so forth. So reaching out to others like yourself is very important. So what are the three things you want to leave that the healthcare practitioner or lay person, what are the three light, bright opportunities that you'd like to leave? Because I always like to leave with solutions and I like to leave on an optimistic note. There is there is lots of work going on out there. We have another um, scientific advisory board member who just did a grand rounds program at a, a major teaching institution. And so there is hope out there. We are moving the ball forward and down the field to use a sports analogy. <laughs> yes, I am. Um... What I, uh, okay, three things. Uh, One is I want you to feel um, that you aren't, that as a practitioner, you aren't lost in the equation and that you really matter and that what you need as a sexual being matters and how that intersects with your patient really matters and really find the support for that. Take the time, invest in yourself and in your sexual life. It's, you know, we hear like lawyers don't have wills, therapists don't go to therapy uh, and, and physicians don't support themselves medically. And some of that's a stereotype, some of that's true. Uh, and I, I'm going to ask you not to be that person in your sexual life too. I bet, I mean, across the board, there are hardly any disciplines um, in the mental health, and excuse me, in the um, health practitioner field that in some way you don't come across something in the sexual world um, in your patients. So take care of yourself uh, so that that is a place where you feel more comfortable in your professional life also. Uh, and people who are sexually fulfilled are showing up in all areas of their life in a more fulfilled way too. Uh, so I will posit that if you are more fulfilled in your sexual life and as a sexual being, that that's going to make your workday uh, a more fulfilling place as well in your vibrancy. Uh, next is that I don't want you to feel overwhelmed that you have to get absolutely everything right, because I know there are practitioners that are listening who have such good hearts and good intentions and are going to be writing this down and wanting to have a sex positive and safe, safe sex pra- practice. You don't have to get absolutely everything right and perfect. You don't have to be up on 100% of everything all the time to be sex positive and to make a positive difference in your patients' lives but you can start in places that are improving. And I can tell you that the difference it makes when I get to hear a client have a positive experience, even the practitioner never knows it. 
um, that it makes a difference. So your efforts will make a difference in somebody's life. And I want to kind of like put a little plug also that I know you'll be experiencing some people that are annoyed by some of the changes that you make. You will have some patients that don't like um, seeing that. And I, I will ask you to consider if it aligns with your values, to consider that that isn't really harming um, those people, but it, there is harm to be done for those who are in marginalized community. And I, I always encourage my clients to go back to the practitioners who are making a difference and tell them directly so that they know those efforts that you put in because it is often an extra effort with everything else that you're undertaking. Uh, and then the third aspect of this that I would like practitioners to walk away with um, is if you aren't seeing the um, other people who are teaching about sexuality or are providing this, uh, consider being that person yourself and being somebody that your colleagues can go to as the sex positive person, the practitioner, the clients that people are going to and, um, and be an advocate. Most of us who are in the medical or mental health field have become experts on our by our own selves and our own doing. And um, it can be done and it's extremely rewarding um, to be somebody that is providing um, support for people in, in sexual wellness. I love that, be the difference. It's my mantra too, be the difference, <laughs> deliver the difference. Yes, you can be that person. Great advice from Dr. Juliana Hauser. And there's a lot of work to be done. I will tell you behind the scenes, there are a lot of folks, Dr. Juliana and others that we have met uh, through FemPharma that are working with the medical community to forge this education ahead and to have medical schools begin the process of adopting this into medical school education. But as you can tell, there's a generation of physicians, up and coming physicians that have recognized this and they are also propelling this agenda forward. It's so important. And we thank you for what you do, Juliana. Thank and you. All, all, of, all of the mental health professionals that are supporting healthcare practitioners along the way. So thank you once again. And as always, it's been a pleasure to have this conversation with you. And for those of you that are viewing and listening to this, we hope that you've enjoyed it. Dr. Juliana will be back for more. And we want you to remember to take care and always love Mia Vita. <laughs>